Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to the Dion Gordon Podcast. And I'm your host, the connoisseur of common sense, the purveyor of authenticity, the man who calls it right down the middle, Dion Tyree Gordon. Enough of the bullshit. Let's get to work. NBA playoffs, NBA conference finals to be exact. In the Western Conference, you have the two-seed Phoenix Suns and the number four-seed LA Clippers. That series has already begun. Phoenix take a one-game-to-none series lead with a 120-114 victory on Sunday afternoon. Your NBA Eastern Conference Finals have now been decided with the number three-seed Milwaukee Bucks pulling out a 115-111 victory over the number two-seed Brooklyn Nets. And on Sunday, there was a 103-96 victory by the Atlanta Hawks over the Philadelphia 76ers. So on Wednesday, Game 1 of the NBA Eastern Conference Final will tip off with the Milwaukee Bucks hosting the Atlanta Hawks. Raise your hand if you had that as your Eastern Conference Final. This is the most unpredictable NBA playoffs I've seen in a long time. I don't think anybody at the beginning of the season had Milwaukee and Atlanta in the Eastern Conference Final or the Clippers and the Suns in the Western Conference Final. Everyone picked against the Suns all year. Nobody really bought into them. No one took them seriously. Yeah, they were the number two seed, but everyone, myself included, was like, let's wait and see. Let's see if they can prove it. Let's see if this team is actually for real. They haven't proven anything. They haven't been in the playoffs in the past 10 years. But give them credit. Even without Chris Paul taking game one against the Clippers, Devin Booker going off for 40 points in game one, 15 and 29 shooting, 3 of 7 from 3, 13 rebounds, 11 assists, a 40-point triple-double in his first ever conference final game of his career. Give this team credit. Being coached by Monty Williams, executive of the year, James Jones. Yes, that James Jones, formerly in the Miami Heat for so many years, putting his roster together, bringing in Chris Paul, adding Jamison Crowder to the mix. A great mix of youth and veteran leadership has brought this team to within three wins of games in the NBA final when nobody at the beginning of the season had them picked to even make the playoffs. Myself included, once again, full transparency. No one saw the Phoenix Suns coming, yet here they are in the NBA's Western Conference Final. An incredible performance by Devin Booker yesterday. Had a lot of people the day after comparing him to Kobe Bryant. I don't like doing shit like that. It's only one conference final game. Kobe Bryant was a five-time NBA champion. I don't like comparing guys to other guys, even though that's what, that's what the media does. You know, Luka Doncic gets compared to LeBron James. Trey Young gets compared to Stephen Curry. Donovan Mitchell gets compared to Dwayne Wade. Kristaps Porzingis gets compared to a dumpster fire, etc. The list goes on and on. The media and fans in general love to compare different players, different eras, different generations, and so on. And yes, there are elements of Booker's game that remind you of Kobe Bryant. In particular, you saw that on full display in the third quarter. That, that third quarter reminded me of an Arturo Gotti-Mickey Ward fight. Both teams, the Clippers and the Suns, were just punching the shit out of each other in that third quarter. And Devin Booker was doing so much work in the mid-range game. The lost art of the mid-range game. It was beautiful to see. And that's where the Kobe influence comes into play. That's where you see the elements of his game that remind you of Kobe Bryant. When you see the work this man was doing in the mid-range and the way he was killing the Clippers, pulling up from 15, 20, two-dribble pull-up, get to his spot, and bury the jumper. It was Kobe-esque, and it was such a welcome departure for what you normally see in the NBA game where it's all about a three. It's either a three-point shot or drive to the rim and nothing in between. Devin Booker proved and showed to you on Sunday you win big-time playoff games playing in the mid-range. Chris Paul showed you that in the Denver series with the work he was doing in the mid-range game. Kevin Durant has showed you that over the past couple years. Kawhi Leonard has showed you that over the past few years. You win playoff games by playing in the mid-range. Whether right or wrong, 
there's so much emphasis being placed on analytics and pulling up from three because obviously a three is worth more than a two. You know, taking a a 23-foot three-point shot is better than taking a 20-foot two-point shot, obviously, like I just said, because you get more points for a three-point shot than you do for a two. So every team has followed analytics, and to a certain degree, you can blame Steph Curry for the way the NBA looks nowadays. I always say Curry broke the league. Because every team is trying to be just like the Golden State Warriors and take somewhere between 20 to 33-point shots a game and got guys pulling up from 30 and 35. Unfortunately, not everyone is Stephen Curry. Some guys can do that. Trey Young can do that. Damian Lillard can do that. But not everyone can do that. Unfortunately, everyone in the league thinks they can do that. And that's why you have a lot of bad basketball being played nowadays because everyone's just taking threes instead of playing in the mid-range and getting the best shot available instead of selling for a three. But Devin Booker showed you on Sunday there's still value in the mid-range game. He also showed that he can lead a basketball team. Chris Paul, I think, has been the leader of that team all season. Devin Booker's the best player. But I think CP has been the, the leader of that squad. But Devin Booker and Chris Paul's absence stepped up to the forefront and really showed what he's capable of. Not only did he have 40 points, like I said, he had 11 assists as well. He played a complete all-around game, which is something he's not really known for. He's known for being a scorer. You know, if you go back a few years ago, he had about 70 points in a loss versus the Boston Celtics. Everyone knows he can score, but him having a triple-double like that in a playoff game caught a lot of people off guard, especially having a double-digit amount of assists. That's something he's not really known to do. So at a young age, in his first-ever NBA Conference Finals, he showed what he's capable of. He showed what he can do, and he was a leader on Sunday, and he led his team to victory. Also got to give credit to the L.A. Clippers, who had a quick turnaround at Game 6. I guess the one-seeded Utah Jazz Friday night closed him out. Terrence Mann went crazy at the game of his life, put him 39 points. Paul George, give this brother credit. Everyone, everyone wants to slander and denigrate and disrespect this brother when he played terribly in the bubble last year. He was Pandemic P. He was George Paul. He was the butt of everyone's jokes. If you're going to make jokes about him, talk about him when he plays well, too. Give him his credit. Give him his flowers. There's nothing wrong with that. It's okay to joke around about folks, but when they play well, when they actually do something at a high level, give them their proper respect. Give them their credit. Paul George balled out. Kawhi Leonard out with a knee sprain indefinitely during the Utah series. They were down 0-2. It was 2-2 going into game five. Paul George balled out in Utah in hostile territory on the road, put up 37 points. Is Utah, so he probably got called the N-word about 37 times. Got called the N-word for every bucket he made. So give the man credit. Big game, on the road, must-win situation. Come back home to Staples Center in game six. Terrence Mann had the game of his life, scoring 39 points. But Paul George also had 28 points in that game in a closeout game of the number one seed, down 75-50 to 50 in the second half, and the Clippers fought back. Showed their resiliency, showed their toughness, showed their intestinal testicular fortitude, and came back and won that game. Give credit to Tyron Lue as well. A lot of people shit on Tyron Lue all the time. They say he's not a real coach, doesn't know what he's doing. People don't respect Tyron Lue. People laugh at Tyron Lue. Tyron Lue just did something no other coach in L.A. Clipper history has ever done. He has led this team to their first ever conference finals. He's done so without the best player on the team being healthy in uniform, available to contribute. Kawhi Leonard has been out since game four. They won game five on the road in Utah and came back in a closeout game and finished off the number one seed at home 
and advance to the conference finals. Give Tyron Lewis credit. Now, a lot of people will say, well, he had LeBron James. Well, a lot of people had LeBron James. Dave Blatt had LeBron James. He didn't win a championship. Paul Silas had LeBron James. He didn't win a championship. Mike Brown also coached LeBron James in Cleveland. Didn't win a championship. A lot of people coached LeBron in Cleveland and couldn't win. Tyron Lue coached the Cleveland Cavaliers to their only championship in franchise history, breaking a 54-year drought for professional sports teams to win a title in the city of Cleveland. Now he's coaching the L.A. Clippers, a team with no championship history or pedigree, a team that's been down 0-2 twice in these NBA Finals and has fought back to win both times. Give the brothers credit. See, the problem with Tyron Lue is when you mention that name, the first thing people think about is Allen Iverson hitting a three and then stepping over him in the 2001 NBA Finals as Iverson lit him up for 51 points and beat the L.A. Lakers in their only playoff loss of that NBA playoffs. Either that or to give LeBron all the credit, LeBron and Kyrie all the credit for that 2016 championship. This team was down 3-1 to a 73-win basketball team and to win two out of three games in Oakland on the road, and they accomplished that. It wasn't – obviously LeBron gets a lot of the credit and should get a lot of the credit. He was the best and most important player on the team, but every championship head coach has had great players on their team. Red Auerbeck had Bill Russell. Pat Riley had Magic Johnson and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Phil Jackson had Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen. Later on, Kobe Bryant, Shaquille O'Neal. Greg Popovich had David Robinson, Tim Duncan, Manu Ginobili, Tony Parker. Eric Spolster had LeBron, D. Wade, Chris Bosh. Steve Kerr's had Steph Curry, Draymond Green, Klay Thompson, and later on, Kevin Durant. Every great coach, even some of the greatest coaches in NBA history, had great players on their team. That's how this works. As I explained in the last podcast, the NBA is, was, and always will be a superstar-driven individual player league. You have to have superstars for the most part to win a championship. The only outliers of that are the 04 Pistons and the 2011 Mavericks. But even the 2011 Mavericks had Dirk Nowitzki, a perennial all-star, one of the greatest players of all time. The 2004 Pistons were a great team in every sense of the word, with Chauncey Billups, Rip Hamilton, Tayshaun Prince, Rasheed Wallace, Ben Wallace, great players off the bench like uh, Lindsey Hunter and Corliss Williamson and Memon O'Core. My point is you can't be a coach in this league and win a championship if you don't have talented players on your team. So I don't know why people always use that against Tyron Lue and saying that, well, you have LeBron, you have Kyrie, you have Kevin Love. Well, look at every other coach that won a championship. They also had great players on their team. So once again, give Tyron Lewis proper credit and respect. Clippers down 1-0 in that series. There's a chance Kawhi Leonard might come back. Uh, the, the, the word that I heard today, just recently reported about an hour or two ago, was that Kawhi Leonard's knee is diagnosed as a sprain, not a tear, as it was originally feared to be. It is a knee sprain. He is listed as day-to-day. So the window of opportunity is there for him to come back, as it is with Chris Paul. Hopefully, for the sake of basketball, for basketball fans like myself and everyone listening to this podcast, hopefully Chris Paul comes back for the Phoenix Suns. Hopefully Kawhi Leonard comes back for the L.A. Clippers. And we have this series being played with the best player on the Clippers and the floor general, the leader of the Phoenix Suns in uniform, healthy and able to contribute to their teams so we have the best possible basketball being played. So that takes care of the West. Moving on to the Eastern Conference side of the playoff bracket. And I got to start by giving credit where credit is due. Giannis Antetokounmpo, the Greek freak, a.k.a. running dunk man, a.k.a. the modern-day updated European version of Stromile Swift, came correct in Game 7 on the road in Brooklyn, and obviously an elimination game 
stepped up and did what a former two-time league MVP is supposed to do in these type of situations. 40 points, 15 and 24 shooting, 13 rebounds, and most importantly, 8 of 14 from the free throw line. The crowd in Brooklyn was killing Giannis every time he came to the free throw line. They were chanting, they were counting actually from 1 to 10 or however long it took him to shoot his free throws because as we all know, Giannis usually goes over the allotted 10 seconds you're supposed to be given to shoot a free throw. The count got up to about 13 or 14 seconds. Now you can say the crowd in Brooklyn's counting fast. But either way, I think we all can agree it takes Giannis onto the Kumpo a long time to shoot his free throws. Uh, James Harden showed his frustration with Giannis's free throw routine in Game 6. Uh, but give Giannis credit. 40 points, 15 out of 24, like I said, 8 of 14 from the free throw line, 2 of 6 from 3. Most of his work was done either in the paint or somewhere close to the basket. The advice I gave him on the previous podcast. So clearly, Giannis Antetokounmpo was listening to the Dion Gordon podcast. And for that, I say thank you, Giannis. I appreciate it. I'm always here to help. I'm a good guy. I'm a, I'm a valuable resource. If you ever need help on the court or in life, anywhere in general, reach out. Seek my help out. I'm here to help. I'm, I'm available 20 hours of the day. I can function on four hours of sleep. If you need help, just ask me. I got all the help in the world for you. Giannis Antetokounmpo took my input, listened to what I had to say, applied it to the Game 7 versus the Brooklyn Nets, and led his team to victory. Some timely buckets down the stretch by Chris Middleton, Drew Holiday, Brooke Lopez, and P.J. Tucker. All five guys for the Milwaukee Bucks starting five had double figures in this game. They came through. They did exactly what they're supposed to do. That was a big-time performance by Giannis and everyone in the Milwaukee Bucks uniform. Give credit to Mike Budenholzer. His job was on the line this series. A lot of people were talking about in Brooklyn won this series, and Milwaukee bowed out in the second round. Budenholzer might get fired, probably should get fired. But he lives to fight another day. His team's moving on to the Eastern Conference Finals because of the great effort they put forth in Game 7. Give him his credit. The same way I said give Tyron Lewis credit, give Mike Budenholzer his credit. On the flip side, do not give any credit to Steve Nash, who I felt like was out coaching this series, who I felt like kind of choked it away. Some critical timeouts he should have called, he didn't call. Some critical substitutions he could have made, didn't make. Some rotation problems in the series. Jeff Green was cooking in Game 5. Didn't get a whole lot of playing time in Game 6 or Game 7. Uh, to be exact, Jeff Green, my man Jeff Green from Georgetown, had 13 minutes and zero points in Game 7. Then, of course, you have James Harden. I'm not going to be too critical with James. I'm actually going to commend James for what I thought was a courageous performance in games five, six, and seven. Going out there on basically one leg, he injured his hamstring early in game one, I think within the first minute or two of the game in game one. So he's been limping around on, on a bad leg. Uh, you can see it in games five and six. He didn't want to make any quick, sudden movements. and didn't want to get out in transition. He was even more of a liability on defense than what he normally is. He couldn't cut. He couldn't move. Game five, he was basically just walking around. He got a little bit more confidence in his, in his hamstring as the series progressed, but you could tell from watching him he wasn't anywhere near 100%. But give the man an A for effort. Give the man credit for going out there and trying and putting forth some type of effort. You can look at his numbers in game seven and say, well, he had 22 points. 5 of 17 shooting, 2 for 12 from 3. His game was primarily step back threes. He has no explosion or no confidence in his legs to even make a move to the basket. So he had to settle for three much in the game, and he was off. Guys out there playing on one leg. Like I said, I'm not going to be too critical with James. I give him credit. He went out there, he manned up, he tried to tough it out. It just wasn't meant to be. And unfortunately for James Harden, this is yet another playoff 
disappointment. I won't, I, won't, I won't use the word failure. I'll say another playoff disappointment for James. Uh, he's had an abundance of those throughout his career. Obviously, he's never won a championship. He's come up short many years. There were a lot of years where I, I did point the finger at James Harden and say, well, he didn't play well. Style of play is kind of gimmicky anyway. He relies on drawing a lot of fouls and helping, having the referees bail him out. In the playoffs, that doesn't really happen too often. But this year, there's nothing I really can say about him. You know, early in the season, he facilitated a trade from Houston to get to Brooklyn to uh, align himself with Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant. They made a deal with San Antonio to bring in LaMarcus Aldridge, who unfortunately had to retire due to heart problems. They made a deal with the Detroit Pistons to bring in Blake Griffin, who all of a sudden found the fountain of youth in Brooklyn. When Blake was in Detroit, he couldn't jump over a phone book. All of a sudden in Brooklyn, he's jumping over Kias again and dunking on people. It's funny how that works. All these guys converged on Brooklyn, New York with the Brooklyn Nets to make this happen and try to win a championship for a lot of these guys, an elusive first championship for James Harden, Blake Griffin, and LaMarcus Aldridge. And unfortunately for all those guys and for the Brooklyn Nets fans who, who have all been fans of the Brooklyn Nets for about 12 months now, unfortunately it wasn't meant to be. Uh, all these guys' bodies broke down for the most part except for KD and Blake. But James Harden had a hamstring, Kyrie had an ankle sprain, LaMarcus Aldridge, as I said earlier, had the heart problem, so these guys couldn't play. And that was consistent with what happened to the Brooklyn Nets all season long. Their big three of Kyrie, KD, and Harden only played about 14 to 15 games together in uniform because either one or two or all three guys were out at the same time or being arrested for injury or for, for maintenance, for load management, whatever you want to call it. So it what happened to them in the playoffs wasn't that much of a surprise because if you've been paying attention to them all season long, you saw these guys being out with different injuries at different points of the season, and it just came back to bite them in the most inopportune time. So it's unfortunate for them. It's unfortunate for Kevin Durant, who gave everything he had, left it all on the floor, blood, sweat, and tears, mildew, whatever, whatever, pieces of his hair. He gave everything he had in that series to try to get the Brooklyn Nets in a position to get to the conference final, and it just wasn't meant to be. 48 points, 53 minutes, hit the game, hit the game tying bucket to force overtime. By the time OT came around, KD ran out of gas. It's as simple as that. He was carrying the entire team. It would have been nice if Joe Harris could make an open three. Joe Harris had a multitude of open looks the entire game. Joe Harris couldn't throw a rock in the Atlantic Ocean. Joe Harris missed more shots than a drunk white girl. Joe Harris shoots like the bad guy in a movie. If Joe Harris had shot at Tupac and Biggie, both men would still be alive right now. If Joe Harris tried to slide in a girl's DM to shoot his shot, he'd miss and end up sending a message to her AOL Instant Messenger. Joe Harris was 47.5% from three during the regular season, 51% to finish out a plus one-on-one through the Nets' six-and-one playoff start, but he shot eight for 33 for a minus 51 over the last five games. The Nets lost four out of five of those games. Joe Harris was fucking terrible, and I feel like enough people aren't talking about that. Instead, the narrative has been, well, Kevin Durant missed the game-winning shot in overtime. And it was the air ball. He airballed the game-winning shot in overtime, being guarded by Drew Holiday, tried to pull up at the top of the key, a similar shot that he made to force overtime in the first place. He shot an air ball. So everyone, in particular, all the LeBron James fans, sickle fans, witnesses, stands, whatever you want to call them, all, the, all his loyal subjects, I guess, they've been hammering, they've been killing KD. 
the past two or three days, well, LeBron never had a problem in the Eastern Conference. LeBron always got to the NBA Finals playing in the East. Sure he did, when the fifth seed in the Eastern Conference had a losing record, beating such mighty juggernauts as the Toronto Raptors with Kyle Lowry and DeMar DeRozan, and the 2015 Atlanta Hawks, which everyone knew was a fraudulent basketball team, and the beaten and weathered down Indiana Pacers, who couldn't score more than 80 points most of the time. And the 2011 Chicago Bulls only had one guy that could score in Derrick Rose. And then for much of that time, the second best player in the Eastern Conference was his teammate in Dwayne Wade when, when he was with the Miami Heat. People love LeBron that much and hate anyone who's been a threat to him and hate anyone who's tarnished and destroyed his legacy in any capacity that it will slander a guy who went 48 points in 53 minutes and carried the team on his back. LeBron fans hate KD, hate Steph Curry, hate Kawhi Leonard, hate Dirk Nowitzki, hate anyone who has done anything to harm LeBron's legacy, kept him from winning championships, but compared to him, have certain people in the media say are better than him. They can't stand this. It's unbelievable to watch. It's unbelievable to hear. These people can't stand anyone even being compared to LeBron, anyone who's an obstacle in LeBron's way, anyone who's a threat to him, anyone who's being talked about as being better than him is public enemy number one, persona non grata. They cannot stand it. They hate anyone who's even on being viewed as being on the same level as LeBron James. It pisses these people off to their core. These people are worse than Beyonce fans, the Beehive, whatever you want to call them. LeBron fans are worse than that. LeBron fans, to me, are on par with Trump supporters. You can't tell these people shit. They make up their own narratives. They can't stand when you talk even in a critical way, not even a negative way. It's a critical way about their favorite person, the person they chose to love and support in so much of an obsequious manner. They can't stand when you challenge them on any level. You can't challenge Trump. You can't challenge LeBron. You can't challenge Beyonce, Kamala Harris. All these people have such loyal, obsequious, devoted followers. They can't stand any outside opposition whatsoever. It's almost sickening to watch. And to hear the people slander KD, well, now KD knows how it feels like to be LeBron when you got to carry the whole team when you're back. How come KD's not getting the same amount of criticism that LeBron always gets? Well, I'll answer that question for you. Kevin Durant never at one point of his career referred to himself as being the GOAT. Kevin Durant never told people I'm the greatest player of all time because I led a 3-1 comeback and won my third championship. Kevin Durant never said I'm the best player of all time. LeBron James did. He's the chosen one. He's the king. He was the one anointed as being the savior of the league and the face of the league. Kevin Durant was never recognized as being the face of the NBA. He's never been on that level. He's a great player. He's a future Hall of Famer. But he's never been recognized as being the guy. The only person calling him the guy is Skip Bayless. And Skip Bayless is a fucking idiot. I don't even know why people continue to watch that show and take him or Shannon seriously. They're both fucking idiots. This show is fucking useless. Same thing with First Take with Stephen A. and Max and whoever the fuck else they get on that show. These shows are fucking useless. People just get on TV and just say anything. They create narratives. No one legitimately ever looked at Kevin Durant as being the face of the NBA or in a GOAT conversation or compared him to Michael Jordan or Kobe Bryant. No one legitimately ever did that. That's why he doesn't get the same level of scrutiny as LeBron James does. Because he never referred to himself as being the GOAT. He was never recognized as being the face of the NBA. No one ever anointed him as being the savior of the NBA. 
No one ever compared him to Michael Jordan. When you're on the level that LeBron is, you're going to get a certain level of scrutiny and criticism. That just comes with it. That's par for the course. Kobe Bryant got the same thing. Jordan got the same level of criticism when he was playing. People said Jordan was buried in magic. He was the greatest player of all time in the, in the middle of his career. You're going to get that criticism when you're on that level, when you're ranked and evaluated as being that guy. And in LeBron's case, he invites that criticism. This is the same dude that in the first round versus Phoenix, when Anthony Davis went down, said, well, these shoulders weren't made for nothing. Okay, then why'd you lose three consecutive playoff games and get beaten in the first round? You told the media you have big shoulders, put the team on your back and carry the team then. I never heard Kevin Durant talk like that. I wasn't very fond of Kevin Durant leaving OKC and going to Golden State and linking up with Steph and Clay and KD and joining forces with the team that just beat him when he was in Oklahoma City, when he blew a 3-1 lead, and then he just goes and joins forces with these guys. I wasn't a fan of that, but I don't hold it against him. He had to do, he had to do what he had to do. It's over and done with now. And people will still blame KD for joining, Golden, joining forces with Golden State and creating a super team over there. Who's, who did that first? LeBron created a super team in Miami. So if, if LeBron fans are mad at KD for creating a super team, be mad at your own guy for setting the precedent. Be mad at him for setting the example to do that. I don't understand all the criticism and backlash I heard over the weekend about Kevin Durant when this dude gave you everything he had, no apologies, no excuses, left it all on the floor, shook hands with the Milwaukee Bucks before he left the court, didn't leave with five minutes left to go on the, on the clock, Stayed on the court, shook hands with everybody. James Harden left, though. I will point that out, though. James Harden did leave without shaking hands or acknowledging anybody on the Milwaukee Bucks team. Kevin Durant acknowledged everybody on that team, from Giannis to P.J. Tucker to Middleton to Holiday to Lopez, Pat Connaughton, didn't matter who it was. KD went one by one and acknowledged every man on that team for a series well played and a job well done. That's a man. I respect that. Nothing but respect and admiration for Kevin Durant. Incredible performance throughout all seven games in that series. Games five and game seven in particular. He was all they had. James Harden on one leg. Kyrie out. Blake Griffin can give you about 15 to 18. That's about it. Jeff Green had one good game. Steve Nash, as I said earlier, could have done some things better as a coach. But was over, it's over and done with now. But KD gave you everything he had. I don't understand the slander and ridicule and disrespect this brother has gotten. I don't know what else he could have possibly done. I, I seriously don't know. Fill me in. What else could he have done? Can he shoot the ball for Joe Harris? No. Can he magically heal Kyrie Irving's ankle and rehabilitate him and bring him back to the, to the court? No. What else could he have done? LeBron fans out there clowning KD because he airballed the last second shot. At least he took the fucking shot. If that was LeBron, he would have passed the ball to a wide-open Joe Harris who would have proceeded to miss the shot once again as he did all series. And then in the postgame, he would have said, well, I made the correct basketball play. That was the right play to make, right? He was, he, he was wide open, so I passed the ball to him. KD took the shot, didn't work out. It was an air ball. So be it. I appreciate and applaud the fact that he actually took the shot. He was man enough to take the shot. I don't care if you miss it. Just take the shot. I have more respect for you. And speaking of people who don't want to take shots in critical playoff games, you know, I, I love the NBA playoffs. I love the playoffs in every sport. And my favorite thing about the playoffs 
is that it exposes people. We find out who can play and who can't play, who's a contender, who's a pretender, who's about this life and who is not about this life, who should be in the game and who should be on the bench, who's phony, who's fake, who's a media creation and who can really ball. We find out the answers to all these questions in the playoffs. We separate the real from the fake. You can put up big numbers in the regular season. You can be an all-star. You can be a multiple-time all-star in the regular season. You can do work in games 1 through 82 or in this season, games 1 through 72. But in the playoffs, we find out what are you really made of. And as far as the Philadelphia 76ers and Atlanta Hawks are concerned, we found out that Trey Young is really about this life. Trey Young belongs on this stage. Trey Young is becoming my new favorite basketball player. In the same pantheon as guys like Steph Curry and Kawhi Leonard and Damian Lillard, Trey Young is joining that class. Trey Young is that guy. Trey Young had a horrendous shooting performance in Game 7 of that playoff series, 5 for 23 to be exact. But he kept shooting, and he still figured out a way to manufacture 21 points and get 11 assists and help his team win. The mark of a great basketball player is when they can contribute in more ways than one. If your shot isn't falling, you can do other things. You can get assists, you can get rebounds, you can get steals, blocks, create turnovers. You can facilitate the offense. You can control the pace of the game. You don't always have to score 30 or 40, 50 points to dominate a game. Sometimes your shot isn't going to be there. And for Trey Young as a shooter, he knows that. He knows his shot isn't always going to be on point. But in Game 7... When it wasn't on point, he still figured out a way to contribute to his team and help his team win. Kevin Herter for the Atlanta Hawks was clutch and was the best player on the floor for either team. 27 points, 10 of 18 shooting, 7 rebounds, 3 assists, 2 for 4 from 3-point range. He was incredible. Timely buckets all throughout the entire game. Played with poise, played with composure. Young kid, 22 years old, went to the University of Maryland, making, his name for, making a name for himself right now in these NBA playoffs. He was outstanding. Gallinari was outstanding. Banyanovich was great. Clint Capella was great. Collins was awesome. Trey Young dug deep and found a way to contribute, even though his shot wasn't falling. Nate McMillan doing an outstanding job as the head coach of this team. He took over in midseason, and this team was about four or five games under 500. They've been playing lights-out basketball ever since Nate McMillan took over. To be exact, they went 27-11 and 11 since Nate McMillan took over for Lloyd Pierce, Beat the New York Knicks in the first round in five games, have taken out the number one seed Philadelphia 76ers in seven games, and have found themselves in the conference finals. Naaman Millen finds himself in great company, by the way. He is now the third coach in NBA history to take over a team in midseason and lead them to the conference finals. Pat Riley's done that twice with the 81-82 Lakers and the 05-06 Miami Heat. The 05-06 Miami Heat, by the way, won a championship. The aforementioned Tyron Liu accomplished this with the 2015-2016 Cleveland Cavaliers that also ended in the championship. So if you're an Atlanta Hawk fan, you've got to be encouraged by that. Um, this is the most wide-open NBA playoffs I've seen in a long time. Who's to say the Atlanta Hawks can't win a championship? I know I've been talking on this podcast on multiple episodes about the curse of Atlanta sports teams and sports teams from the state of Georgia in general, but curses do get broken. I mean, the Red Sox did win the World Series after an 86-year drought. Uh, the Cubs went about 108 years, and then finally broke through and won a World Series. Curses in sports do get broken. You can break the stigma that's on your team or on your region or whatever, and, and this, the most wide-open NBA playoffs that people have seen in a long time, that I've seen in a long time, who's to say the Atlanta Hawks can't win it? 
Who's to say they can't beat the Milwaukee Bucks? They're not invincible. Milwaukee was just down 2-0 and then down 3-2 in the previous series. They can be beaten. Anything can happen. All four of these teams, to me, are kind of on level playing field. Like None of them are really that far superior to the other teams. There's no juggernauts playing right now. There's no like unbeatable, dominant basketball teams left. All four of these teams are kind of on equal footing. Who's to say the Atlanta Hawks can't do this with Nate McMillan? We got three out of the four coaches remaining still black, by the way. I'll always point that out. Nate McMillan, Tyron Lue, and Monty Williams in Phoenix. I'm rooting for all three of these brothers. I don't care who wins it. Unfortunately, one black coach who will not be participating in the NBA Eastern Conference Finals is Glenn Doc Rivers, who once again shit the bed in the playoffs, once again lost to Game 7, once again lost a playoff series he was favored to win with an absolutely soul-crushing, deflating, embarrassing loss at home in Philadelphia to the Atlanta Hawks. They, at one point in Game 5, they blew a 26-point lead in this series, a 26-point lead in that game to lose Game 5. And you turn around lose the series. You're a number one seed. You got Joel Embiid having an MVP caliber season. You got Tobias Harris. You got Seth Curry going off, playing out of his mind, looking like his brother Steph. But unfortunately for Glenn Doc Rivers and the Philadelphia 76ers and the Philadelphia 76ers fans, they had to overcome the insurmountable odds of having Ben Simmons on their own basketball team. Ben Simmons was abysmal, horrid, disgraceful, decrepit, absolute shit in all seven games of this series. Ben Simmons averaged 9.9 points a game, shot 15 to 45, attempted only 14 shots in the final three games, and had three fourth-quarter field goal attempts the entire series. That passivity greatly hindered the Philadelphia 76ers and robbed them of a chance to win. I blame Doc Rivers for not making the adjustments in the fourth quarter. I would have gone with Maxi or Thighball or Shake Milton in the fourth quarter. At least those brothers would have attempted a shot. At least they're going to try. At least they're not going to be afraid of the moment. They're not going to be out there looking like a deer in headlights, as Ben Simmons appeared to be. This is a multiple-time All-Star. This is a former Rookie of the Year, giving you absolutely nothing in Game 7 of a playoff series. For so many years, the 76ers and their fans have been talking about trust the process. What am I trusting? What is the process? If it's Joel Embiid, I trust that. Embiid came correct. 41 minutes of basketball, 31 points, 11 to 21 field goals, 11 rebounds. All that on one leg. He's playing with a torn meniscus and still giving you a great effort and great output. And still trying hard and still taking shots, still putting his body on the line to help his team win. You watch the 76ers play in this series. All Ben Simmons does every offensive possession is dribble the ball up the court, pass to someone else, and go hide in the corner. He doesn't even want the ball in his hands. He's afraid to shoot. And there was no greater example of this in the critical juncture of the game, maybe the most critical juncture of the game. Fourth quarter, 88-86 Atlanta, 3.34 on the clock, 12 seconds on the shot clock. They clear out for Ben Simmons to go one-on-one ISO with, with Danilo and Gallinari. He spins off of Gallinari. He's going to the rim. The only person at the rim is Trey Young, who might be six foot tall with shoes on. Ben Simmons is 6'10", considerably taller than Trey Young. Ben Simmons passes the ball to Matisse Thibault, who gets sandwiched between Collins and Trey Young, gets fouled, goes to the free throw line, makes one out of two shots. 
Ben Simmons was scared to go up and dunk the basketball because he didn't want to get fouled because he knows he's absolute shit from the free throw line and he's probably going to miss the free throws. And he knows this is the fourth quarter of game seven at home in front of these Philadelphia fans. Philly fans are rough. Philly fans are notoriously rough. These people booed Santa Claus back in the day. These people ran Iverson out of town. They just ran Carson Wentz out of town. They've run a number of athletes out of town. Ben Simmons is probably next on that list. So it's fourth quarter, game seven, three and a half to go. You got an opportunity to go for a dunk, but you know you might get fouled too in the process. And he knew he didn't want to go to the free throw line that moment. He did not want that smoke. Ben Simmons ducked the fade. He did not want that smoke. He put on a nicotine patch at the most critical moment of the game, the most critical moment of the series. You go up and dunk that basketball. You go strong to the rim with force and with conviction and with power and aggression. And you tie that game with a dunk. The crowd's going to go crazy. The momentum's going to flip in your favor and your direction for Philadelphia. It changes the entire complexion of the game. The score's tied at 88. Now, it's 88-87 because, like I said, Thighball missed one out of two free throws, and now the crowd's deflated. And now the momentum is, is residing with Atlanta. It's not with Philadelphia. It's on Atlanta's sideline. You've lost all the momentum. And then a few possessions later, Trey Young hits a crazy three from, like, 40 feet away. He shot this shit from South Jersey. Trey Young pulled up from the Jersey Shore and buried a soul-crushing three, a dagger, an absolute statement of a three. With the game on the line, with the money on the line, with the chips being pushed to the center of the table, rest in peace, Jim Fossil. With all the chips being pushed to the center of the table, with everything on the line, legacies on the line, legacies being created. Even for young players like Trey Young and Ben Simmons, this goes in the portfolio. This goes on your record. This is going to be talked about for the rest of your career. These moments Game seven and how you respond to it and what do you do in these moments are going to be talked about forever. Trey Young, in the midst of a terrible shooting performance, shows you the difference, the juxtaposition between he and Ben Simmons. Trey Young couldn't buy a bucket all night. At one point, he was like one for 19, but he kept shooting. That true shooter's mentality, I'm going to keep shooting. I know my team needs me. I know I'm not making the shots, but I'm going to keep trying anyway. I'm going to keep putting up shots. I'm going to keep taking attempts because I know eventually one of these shots is going to hit and it's going to change the entire complexion of the game. It's going to be a big shot. It's going to help us win. On the flip side of that is Ben Simmons who won't even try. Ben Simmons is a liability. You cannot be a superstar and a liability at the same time. He won't even attempt a shot. I'd rather have Lonzo Ball. At least Lonzo will attempt a shot. At least Lonzo's jump shot has gotten better. At least Lonzo, to me, looks like he's worked on his game and improved his jump shot. Ben Simmons, I've seen no improvement, no growth, no development, no anything. He still is the same guy. It, asked the, it begs the question, should the Philadelphia 76ers have kept Jimmy Butler? It begs, it begs an even further question, should they have kept Markel Fultz? Was Markel Fultz the right guy to keep all along? And should they have let go of Ben Simmons when they had the opportunity? Should they trade Ben Simmons now? This guy is broken. He's damaged goods. His confidence is shot. He needs to go to a sports psychiatrist and get his confidence correct. He needs to get his mental right. He even said that in the postgame. And speaking of the postgame, when Doc Rivers was asked, is Ben Simmons a point guard for a championship basketball team? He hesitated on the answer and said, I'm not sure. 
That's a ringing indictment of how abysmal you are as a basketball player, of how disappointing and underwhelming you are as a point guard. Ben Simmons plays point guard in the NBA, and you can't trust him in late-game situations to have the ball in his hands. He can't make foul shots with consistency. He shot 33% from the free-throw line throughout these playoffs. As a point guard, he has the ball in his hands most of the time. And as I, as I already said, on a given possession, on pretty much every 76er possession, he's going to dribble the ball down the court, hand off to somebody else, and go run away in the corner. He's afraid of the moment. His confidence is shot. He doesn't want anything to do with having the ball in his hands right now in a big-time playoff game, in a critical juncture of that big-time playoff game. The dude's broken mentally. He looks broken. I don't know if the team has broken him. The Philadelphia fans will break you, as I already said. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's that Kendall Jenner, Kardashian curse. I don't know what the fuck is going on with him. But he has not worked on or developed his game. He has no problem posting videos of him having an open run in L.A. Fitness and pulling up from 20 or 30 and hitting jumpers on regular scrubs in an open run in a pickup game. That's not an issue, but playing against NBA players in the NBA playoffs in the Game 7, where's that confidence at? You got that confidence in that open run in that pickup game in that 5-on-5 at LA Fitness. Where's that confidence in the Eastern Conference semifinals versus Trey Young and the Atlanta Hawks? Who was that guy out there? That guy's an all-star? I'm not saying it's over for Ben Simmons. He's in his mid-20s. There's still a long way to go for him. I'm just saying he desperately needs to improve and work on his game. He got to add something to the repertoire, preferably a reliable and consistent jump shot he can make with regularity. Right now he has no go-to moves. He has no confidence. He has no game. He has no game in the postseason, in meaningful playoff games. He looked good in the first round versus Washington, but that's the eighth seed. That's Washington. You're supposed to look good against them. Against better competition, he gets exposed. It gets shown to be the weakness and the bane of the Philadelphia 76er existence. Currently constituted with the current modern Ben Simmons being what he is now, they will never win a championship. I'll answer that question for Doc Rivers. He, he, he didn't want to say it. He was afraid to say it. I'll say it for him. With Ben Simmons as the point guard of the Philadelphia 76ers being what he is now, they will never win a championship unless he works on his game and improves and adds a lot to his game. There was talk today about they want him to switch hands because apparently he's ambidextrous and can use either his right or his left hand. So I guess he's been shooting with the wrong hand this whole time. I don't know what the problem is. Whatever it is, get it corrected. I don't root against him, brother. I ain't got no problem with him. I hope he, I hope he gets his game right. I hope he gets his mind right. But for what he is right now, he's awful. He is absolutely awful. Terrible, garbage, whatever you want to call it as a point guard in the NBA, as an all-star point guard for the Philadelphia 76ers, he is not good enough right now. And he's got an uphill climb ahead of him. And it's going to be up to him to see if he can make that climb. A lot of questions to be answered in Philadelphia in general. Doc Rivers, Joel Embiid, you know, that's the thing about playing in the playoffs. This is high stakes. This is the most impactful time of the year. When you lose, everything's up for debate. Everyone can be replaced. Everyone's going to be talked about being replaced. Mike Budenholzer's Job was on the line the last series. He was about to get fired. They turned around and won. He lives a fight another day. That's what it's all about. Tyron Lue's job was on the line. There were some rumblings about him losing this job with the, with the Clippers. If they had lost in the first round to Dallas, 
but they were able to rally back from an 0-2 deficit and then do the same thing to Utah, and now they're in the conference finals. Tyron Lewis' job is safe. This is the NBA playoffs. This is when it matters. This is when the rubber meets the road. So for the 76ers, better luck next year. Enjoy your time in Cancun. Go fishing, etc. For the four teams remaining, good luck to all of them. Hopefully everyone remains injury-free. Hopefully Kawhi and CP3 get back. Very much interested to see what happens in the Eastern Conference Finals with this unlikely matchup of Atlanta and Milwaukee. Very much interested to see Game 2 and the rest of the series between Phoenix and the LA Clippers. Very excited to see the rest of that series after a compelling Game 1. So we'll see what happens uh, in both series in the Western and the Eastern Conference Finals. Should be fun. Looking forward to it. Until next time, this is Dion Gordon with the Dion Gordon Podcast. Eternally humble, very much appreciative, always grateful, and very much thankful for you listening to the Dion Gordon Podcast. Picture me rolling. I'm out.